if people do a whole bunch of mailings out there and then they go, oh, I didn't get a response, that's it, then I sort of turn around and go, okay, well, tell me your follow-up strategy. What did you have in your systems and processes that means you followed up with those leads knowing that they've got your letter? What is your, um, your strategy for second offers? If and when do you send them out? Do you even do third offers? Are you doing email blasts out to these people? Are you doing ringless voice or SMS to say, hey, you got my offer. I'd love to speak with you. You know, marketing these days, people don't convert on the first touch. They really mm. don't. Some people do. But, right. you know, the average stat, as you would know, is that people need to be nurtured or, you know, communicated to, if you like, on average about seven to 13 times before they go, oh, these guys sound familiar. Maybe I'll pick up the phone and have a chat with them. So what we've put in place from a systems perspective is doing all of that, but doing all of that quite naturally and, and almost on an automated um, way. And we're finding, therefore, our conversions are going up. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alicia Jarrett. Alicia is a passionate and driven global real estate investor. She's based out of Australia, but she's conducting her deals here in the United States. Really interesting background. She's focused on land flipping and providing business efficient real estate marketing solutions and world-class data solutions to assist other real estate business owners in creating bigger and better businesses for themselves. Alicia is also experienced in the leadership and executive coaching, and she's a business management specialist. I'm super pumped and excited to have her on the show today to share her incredible wealth and knowledge from investing from afar, but here in the United States. But enough of me, let's get her out here. G'day, Alicia, welcome to the show. Hi, Reid. I like that you said g'day then, because that kind of makes us feel a little bit at home, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it? It does, it does. So for those people, 
who are listening in, and we're going to dive into Alicia's story today, but you are from Australia, right? So maybe give us a little bit of context where you're dialing in from before we get into the nuts and bolts. Yes, and not only am I from Australia, I'm currently talking to you in Australia. So <laughs> we, are, my partner Matt and I are actually based down in beautiful Melbourne, Australia. So for any listeners that haven't been, come on over. It's uh, it's open, it's beautiful, and, and it's a little bit of Europe in Australia, I like to say. And, and we've been doing business in the States now for over four years. So, um, so we, we've had, I guess, pre-COVID, if I can say, Reid, we probably spent a good, you know, third to half of our year in the States uh, over there doing mm-hmm. business. We'd fly over, we'd do what we need to do, and then we'd come back. But I guess in the last 12 months, we've even pushed that envelope a little bit further with COVID and have done all of our business remotely. Uh, and, and the That's blessing, incredible. I think, in that as well is it's really forced us to look at how we're getting some of our systems and processes really efficient. And our goal when we started this business read, our goal was to be able to do business no matter what asset class we were in, because we were in single family homes when we started. But our goal was to do business from anywhere in the world as long as we had a laptop and a phone. So I think we've that's proven awesome. that that's, uh, that's <laughs> definitely doable. <laughs> well, well, I, I do want to get into that in a, in a little bit, but I do want to, like I ask all my guests on this show, is rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid because that's going to help us set the stage for your journey into what you've just described to us, which is a pretty idealistic lifestyle. But we'll get into those nuts and bolts in a little bit. But, but, but rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Yeah, I love that question. And, and interesting, I, I was thinking about this when you first asked me this question when we chatted a few weeks ago and it was like, how did I first earn it? Because interestingly enough, I went out and started making money for other people before I made it for myself. So growing mm. up, I grew up in country South Australia, so about uh, eight hours drive from where we are here in Melbourne. And, uh, and my first ever experience of going out and earning money was as a girl guide going and selling biscuits in our country town. And uh, and for those that, you know, I know in, in America, selling girl guide biscuits is, is also still still done. And I, I think it's a, a gorgeous way to, to teach children not only how to approach strangers and ask for money in exchange for a product, but to build relationships in your local neighborhood. So I did that from probably the age of about eight or nine. Um, Put a a bunch of biscuits on the back of my bicycle and went riding around from house to house and selling biscuits and and raising money for essentially our charity, which was uh, to have our Girl Guide unit um, you know, do other things and, and experience other things as a result of fundraising. So my first experience with money was always how to make it for others. And I actually love that that's where I started because it gave me a sense of how money works in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And not only, you know, making it for yourself, but when we make it for others and something that's for the greater good, we all get to benefit out of that. And I think I've actually kept that ethos as part of our our business approach moving forward as well. And secondly to that though, Reid, yeah, uh, I've got really fun memories of that, you know, knock, 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 would you like some biscuits? Um, And and they they weren't that good back then either, but I think people were really charitable. But the Girl Guide biscuits you get now are pretty good. I think they even have chocolate covered ones now. But um, but second to that, Reid, growing up, uh, I started working from the age of 14. So in a small country town, and and the biggest town near us was a town of 25,000 people. Um, So obviously that had a couple of opportunities in it, but I didn't grow up around a lot of opportunity. You really had to make opportunity happen. So uh, from 14, I I was a swimmer all my life. I started becoming a swimming instructor. And in school holidays and on weekends, I would teach other kids how to swim. And that was my first experience of 
earning money. Um, and then I started to do, as, as it was back then, Thursday night, late night shopping and Saturday morning uh, shops were still open. These days, shops are open seven days a week um, till late. But back then, it was Thursday night and Saturday mornings is when you did your casual work, you know, after school hours. And I started working in retail when I was uh, 15. So, awesome. you know, awesome. my, my, my experience in earning money was trying to get out there pretty early. I, I moved out of home at 17 uh, and moved into state to start some new opportunities. And I guess that was driven, Reid, to, to be really open with you about my upbringing. We didn't grow up with a lot of money. Um, I do remember my family and I, you know, being in, in a country town, there were times when we, we struggled. Mum and dad were both self-employed and they were extremely hard workers, but you know, there was a recession in the 80s and that hit us pretty hard. And and I guess at that point, I always had the mindset of, I want to go out and do bigger and better things here. I don't want to have to rely on what's happening in the environment that dictates, you know, what my lifestyle looks like. So I've always been a bit of a go-getter and, and always looking for those next opportunities and moving out of home at 17 to go and start a job in a big city. I moved to Melbourne at 17. I didn't know anyone. Um, moved here pretty young and uh, and started my career pretty early and, and I haven't looked back since. That's awesome. That's an incredible start to the podcast and, and start to life. I guess the, <laughs> the understanding of going out and earning that dollar is really important and, and something that I definitely uh, admire, but also sympathise with. I remember being very young and walking around the local shops and with with my, my my parents' phone number, the landline on a piece of newspaper, and saying, "Can I have a job?" At like thirteen and a half, I think in Queensland it was thirteen and a half. You could be legal was to go out and start getting jobs. Legally and, you know, employed. That was a CV. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a CV. Sorrento Cafe, I can remember, was the uh, the local employer at seven bucks an hour. So um, raking it in. Uh, seven but, bucks. But, love- Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> but I. But now let's transition into to what you've created over the last couple of years. You mentioned earlier in the show, uh, you've, you've been in the US for four years now, investing here actively in, in the United States for four years. Maybe talk about the transition, how you got started in real estate, what what was the bug? And, and I know personally that I got started in real estate, actually, well, not started, but my, my interest peaked in, in, in Australia and I was starting to learn the tricks of the trade, going to no, local networking events in Brisbane before moving to the United States and actually applying the trade here in, in the US and, and growing my portfolio here. So did you yeah. do something similar? You have you, Did you cut your teeth in Australia before making the trans, transition to the United States? We sure did. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so my partner, Matt, and I, before we'd even met, we met later in life at, at 39 and, and we're both now 45. So we've uh, we started our relationship a little bit later, which I love because we'd both gotten to that stage in life that we were ready to explore new things. But up until that point, we'd both had rental properties, you know, over here, negative gearing is a strategy that people still use. We'd both built houses, we'd sold houses, we'd done a range of things over here that meant that we both had a passion in real estate. But readers, you know, and and for the listeners uh, on, on this show, the price point to get into the market over here is ridiculous. And, uh, and the things that you both can and can't do with real estate over here is quite prohibit- prohibitive when we think about the biggest strategy of what we're really trying to achieve with, uh, with real estate investing. So we did look at, you know, different things that we could do here in Australia. But um, I guess at the end of the day, that the more that we got exposed to the opportunity in the States and the more that 
we we started to really explore what you could do over there, the more our eyes and our brains were just like, okay, wow, this is amazing. So we transitioned uh, in, in two levels, I guess. One was that Matt had to leave full-time employment to come in to, to do what we're doing full-time. Uh, and that took about a year to transition into that. I also had my own consulting and training business over here that I'd had for a decade. So again, I had to make the transition of, you know, how do I still manage my customers here and start to work in the States? And and a lot of people are doing that. They're, they're leaving one thing and starting another and trying to really balance that transition in it. And it can be challenging. But where we started, Reed, same as you, we had that, that interest. And then we went along and did some training at a real estate course. And, uh, and it was one of those trainings that skepticism between uh, starting the course and morning tea was like, is this stuff really possible in the States? But between morning tea and lunch, we were just like, yeah, wow, our minds have been blown about what we can do in the States. And it just started from there. That was like day one and we were in. That's awesome. And talk, talk to me a little bit about the perception of that, because I think we need to touch for the listeners on the differences between Australia and the United States. You mentioned negatively gearing. And for those people out there mm. who don't understand negatively gearing, it's just really you're, you don't make enough money from the, there's no cash flow. And so thus you're paying out of your own pocket to cover the mortgage on your investment property and any, that is then tax deductible. So if you earn $100,000 in a year, for example, and you spent $20,000 on your investment property paying off that interest, your new taxable income is now $80,000. That's negatively gearing in, in a nutshell. But, but but maybe talk a little bit about the landscape and how the perception of Australians look at Americans, uh, America and Americans in the way in which they go about investing and maybe the differences in the way they go about their business here in the United States versus back at home. Yeah. Well, wow, that's a big question. Um, there's lots I can answer with that. So <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I would say is, that, and if I start with the perception, I guess I'll start with the perception of maybe some of our friends and family when they ask us about what we're doing. And we talk about the fact that we're wholesaling land, that we fix and flip some houses remotely, um, that we're investing in certain asset classes, that we're you know, doing off-market properties and all of these things. And honestly, most people just glaze over because it's such a foreign mm -hmm. concept here in Australia of the different strategies that we're doing. Here in Australia, it's a pretty cut and dry process, as you would know, Reid. You go to a real estate agent, you find a property to buy, or you go to a real estate agent if you have a property to sell or a broker, and you go through that process, and it's all pretty regulated. Um, the, the opportunity over here for people to do off-market properties, seller financing, lease purchasing, all these creative ways of doing things, um, the opportunity to do that over here is minimal, one, because we are more highly regulated, but two, it just doesn't seem as widely acceptable as a way of doing business. Compared mm. to the United States, so our experience of doing business in the US, particularly in real estate, is not only are we meeting people that are just more a lot more entrepreneurial in their openness and willingness to do and try things, which we love because that's our mindset. But second to that, the openness of both buyers and sellers to get creative and how they deal with their properties. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an entire different market in the US around, and this, this goes for all asset classes, on how the wheeling and dealing and exchanging of properties takes place and how everybody can win, if you like, in the buying and selling process, whether you are a wholesaler, an investor, a fix and flipper, et cetera, everybody in the value chain has an opportunity. Whereas over here, not everybody has the opportunity in the value chain, but equally getting into that value chain is a hundred times the price. <laughs> right. 
Right, right, right. And so how did you then go and start to choose your markets from afar? Because one of the things we spoke about um, in the green room before I press record here was the difficulties that I saw when I first moved to the United States of international investors wanting to come to the US and think, snap up everything they can, but then also having the downside of like, you're not here, you don't know who's a fraud, you don't know who's a shark, and it's the States. You're going to be chewed up and spat out, you know, like it's, you know, there's no there's no rest for the wicked over here. So how did you find getting that foothold in a market, making sure you had the credibility from afar? Because that does seem like a very big mental, at a minimum, a mental gap, right? A mental yeah. leap of faith. So how did, how did you yeah. manage that? Yeah, there's two two ways I'll answer that question. The first one, we started by surrounding ourselves with the right people. So the very first person that we surrounded ourselves with, and I remember this clearly on, on the morning of doing that first course when we were here in Australia, and it was a, a bunch of American uh, guys that had come out here to teach people how to do fix and flips for houses. And, uh, and one of the first tasks that they gave us is, not only do some research to find out which market you want to be in, and, and that was easy for us. I'll come back to that in a moment. But the second thing was find a local realtor in that market that's willing to have a conversation with you. And we literally jumped on Google, started looking for investor-friendly realtors in the area the, the, of our choice. And this was Jacksonville, Florida. We put out a bunch of phone calls. Only one called us back. Only one. <laughs> that person, Michael, uh, for anyone needing a good realtor in Jacksonville, Florida, Michael Cassidy, Keller Williams, he's been on our team since day one. <laughs> so not only is he a friend now, but he is someone that we lean on as our boots on the ground, as someone who gives us an honest opinion when we need it, um, someone that we can we actually joint venture with him on a number of deals. So, so first thing for us was how do we surround ourselves with the right people? And because he's also trusted within his network, he was able to introduce us to local title companies, um, local attorneys that we needed, probate attorneys, um, uh, a whole range of other services that we might have needed at points in time. And then we just started to grow our team organically from there. So I think the first answer to your question was surround yourself with the right people and start those relationships to get those really trusting relationships happening and make them, you know, I, I love to use the word reciprocity. You've got to give as much as you get. So whenever we start those relationships, we're more about what can we give to this person to help them so that in turn they can help us. And I think reciprocity in business is often a little bit missed. And I do see that somewhat in the States. You know, you talked about being uh, chewed up and spit out. Um, I think if the right relationship isn't in place, then people can take advantage pretty, pretty easily. So making sure those trusting relationships are there. Now, the second part to your question, go back to your original question, Reid. There was something else I was going to add there. Oh, was it about choosing the market? Choosing the market. That's right. From afar, yeah. you mentioned Jacksonville, Florida. Like why, why Jacksonville? Yeah, so with the, the course that we were doing, they gave us some really good basics on what to research. So going in and having a look at what's the growth path, what's the population, um, growth path being is, is there a growth path going through that city of infrastructure, um, industry, people moving there, um, you know, demographic information, uh, socioeconomic information, the amount of properties that have been bought and sold, you know, was that above market, below market? What's the actual environment telling us? So there was a bit of a checklist that we went through, but our first thought around it, now this is going to sound uh, a bit of a, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? A magic wand. We were like, what's a sign that could tell us that um, that, that, that would be the place to go? And um, 
funnily enough, uh, my partner, Matt, he's got a, a nephew called Jackson. And we were just speaking to Jackson not long before we attended the course. And we just were talking about Jackson. And they put up a list of potential cities to look at on the screen. And we went, Jacksonville, maybe that's a sign. <laughs> <laughs> So when we then uh, went and did all the research to look at, you know, the, the demographics, the infrastructure, investment in local community, a whole range of things, it ticked all the boxes. Uh, and the other thing that, as you know, uh, Reid, being in, in the States, even though it is the subject of hurricane season, it doesn't freeze over for half of the year. So it makes doing business a lot mm. easier. <laughs> Yes. No, that's right. And I actually love Jacksonville as a market. I know a lot of investors in the multifamily space, syndication space who do some great deals over there. It's definitely yeah. a definitely market. And you mentioned a few things there, path, growth path or path of progress, population, yeah. GDP growth, socioeconomics. You want all those sort of things going for it. And also, I know Florida in general, as in Texas, which is where I'm investing, is have had the biggest inbound uh, movement uh, throughout the United States throughout COVID now that we're sort of changing the landscape in terms of how we work and affordability and people not necessarily needing to live in Silicon Valley or New York or you know Chicago yeah. and moving into warmer climates and doing things from abroad so uh, sorry, from afar I should say totally um, so tell me about the, the investment strategy in and around what you do in Jacksonville Sure. So I guess Jacksonville is where we started. Since then, we've expanded out to a whole bunch of different counties in Florida. We still do uh, Duval County. That's where Jacksonville's based and it still manages to yield us the buyers and sellers all the time. Um, just of interest, I was talking to one of our customers the other day and on average there's 5,000 people a day moving to Florida and I was like, wow. <laughs> so, you know, pretty mm -hmm. incredible. Yep. <laughs> so we, we've expanded out into different counties and our strategy is, is multifaceted. One, we have a couple of really good relationships with some local builders and developers that, that lean on us to, to source land for them. So we actively market in the places that they want to do deals. Because the thing with, with strategy is we always want to do deals where there's enough supply and demand. There's a pull of what buyers are looking for or what sellers are willing to give. So we have some, uh, some builders that we partner with. And then we've just gone out to over four years, I guess we've, we've got a very active buyer's list of where people are looking for properties. So we're continually targeting certain counties that we have buyers that we know that want properties in. Um, Third to that in our strategy is when we've had a, a property that we might not even have buyers for, but when we've got a property and we've advertised it and sold it and turned it around in a really quick sp space of time and it's been super popular, that's an area that we go back into and do more marketing. And the fourth part of the strategy is obviously looking at the types of properties that are best use. So we're obviously doing land wholesaling. So we're always looking in those counties of what's the minimum build size, why are people buying properties there at the moment? So in some of the counties, read that we're doing, we've increased the amount of marketing that, that in some counties we're doing for agricultural land at the moment. Reason being is a lot of our buyers are telling us they want out of the city and they want to be 10 to 20 miles out of the cities and have room for their families to roam around and put a barn on it, build a house on it and have a couple of acres. So people are looking for different lifestyles now. So always listening out to what your buyers are wanting and building that into our strategy. So our strategy never stays static. We're always reviewing it and making sure that it's in line with what's the market telling us. And, and go back to that statement you made before about you know, you having access to deals that the local developers don't. That was a really interesting statement. What are you doing in your strategy to attract those leads to make sure that that someone who, who I would have thought just naturally, again, 
being a layman, if you just listen to this show and listen to this, this statement, like how does someone from Australia attract the better leads than a local person who's a developer? Maybe yeah. they're lazy, I don't know. But 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 how, what sort of technologies are you using in order to get get that listing or get that lead first? Yeah, yeah, really great question. So again, two things I'll answer with that. First is about local builders and developers. I think in certain states across uh, across the US, wholesalers and investors have almost taken over the market of getting off-market properties. So mm. the smart uh, builders and developers have looked at their processes, only the smart ones, and have said, rather than trying to compete with the local wholesalers and investors, why don't we partner with them? Why don't we mm -hmm. use them as our um, source of, of, of leads and, and properties? So the, the ones that we're dealing with used to have their in-house team that, that would do all of this. And they said, you know, what we're paying our in-house team to go out and find this and we're always having to compete with a wholesaler. Why don't we just partner with a really good wholesaler and make that part of our process, which for us is like that smart business. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's been good. And I guess um, to your second point, why do we get so many deals? It's all about consistency and marketing. So in our business read, we've invested really heavily in um, our own database. So we have data for every single property across the U.S., all of the owner attributes for those properties, as well as all of the um, every single business in the States as well. Um, because we have some people that like to use our marketing platform that are going after commercial properties, self-storage units, things like that. So we, uh, I kind of hate to say this because this is not what I want us to be known as, but we've got a data warehouse that's as big as all the other big data warehouses out there when it comes to properties, but we are not a data warehouse seller we use our data to drive outcomes. So our marketing platform, all data-driven. Our soon-to-be-released neighbor letters platform, all data-driven. How we run our land business, all data-driven. So where we um, get quite clever, I think, is rather than just doing a blast out to a county and, and doing a whole bunch of mailers to a county, we're getting really specific on not only the type of property that is ideal to, to get under contract, but the type of seller. So it's not just about a property sometimes, it's also about the person. And so if I can give you an example of that, let's just say that we're marketing for buildable infill lots around uh, Tampa. So we know what the minimum build size is. We know what the maximum size property is to put a house on that, that makes it um, a good return on investment for a build. We know what the average build costs are in those areas. We run sales analysis based upon all of our data to tell us What's stuff going for? Is it above market? Is it below market? What's a real um, improved property worth versus, you know, vacant land, et cetera. We do all of that analysis up front in quite a lot of depth where a lot of other wholesalers probably wouldn't go to that depth. And, um, and then when we send our offers, we're thinking not just in terms of the property, but what's the, the demographic information about the person? Have they acquired the property on a quick claim? Have they had it for more than 10 years? Is it owned in a trust? So what are the different elements, if you like, that when we're then marketing to them, but more to that, when we're having conversations with them, because we have a team that actually answers all of our calls, whereas a lot of uh, other wholesalers and investors will send stuff to voicemail or do that. We've got live people answering our calls. And then it's giving our team the information to be able to have a conversation about that, to say, hey, Reid, thanks for calling us in relation to our offer that we sent. We can see that you got the property on a quick claim, uh, which is $100 uh, eight years ago, you know, was that passed down in your family? If so, we're sorry for your loss, but what are your plans for the land? You know, you've had it for eight years. It's got no improvements because we can see from the data that it's got zero improvements. Um, what are your plans for the land? And, and tell me how we might be able to help you with that. 
So it's using the data to not only help drive the marketing, but to help drive the conversion when it comes to conversation. Um, and where I think that is different is the, if anybody was to go along and, and learn how to do, you know, fix and flip for houses, um, land wholesaling, mobile home investing, whatever it is, most courses, real estate courses, now there's some awesome educators out there, I will say this, but most courses will give you the basics. Go to a data house or go direct to the county, download a list, send out your mail. But then you're fishing with bait on the end of the hooks that not everybody wants. And we're looking at it more from the perspective of go fishing with the right bait, the right hook, and to attract the right, um, you know, person. <laughs> right, right. And so, so talk a little bit about how that morphed into what it seems, again, just from the, the half an hour we've been talking, that that has been the big um, uh, nearly like a, your, your special source, like your, your, your superpower in terms yeah. of how you attract leads, but also the how you can offer a product to other people who would, you know, you just because as you just said, your hook and your bait are so much better than the average person that's been taught out there to go and start in the wholesaling business. Yeah. Yep. So um, to answer the first part of that question, Reid, I guess I'm not going to say that we're better because there's mm-hmm. some awesome people out there doing great deals with, with the tried and tested methods. What I am going to say, though, is we are more consistent than a lot of people we know. So we always we send out mail every week without fail. Now, a lot of people that you'll see out there will send out mail and do one offer. Um, and if that county doesn't respond, they go and find something else. But we've mm-hmm. been doing Duval County now for four years. We send offers consistently Offer one, if we haven't heard from them in a certain time frame, we send out offer two, just a little bit more. Six months later, we will do those same mailers again and we still get deals. So I think not giving up on a certain area and really making sure that you're maximizing the marketing opportunity in that area uh, and using data to tell you if that area is responding or not. So if, if people do a whole bunch of mailings out there and then they go, oh, I didn't get a response, that's it, then I sort of turn around and go, okay, well, tell me your follow-up strategy. What did you have in your systems and processes that means you followed up with those leads knowing that they've got your letter? What is your um, your strategy for second offers? If and when do you send them out? Do you even do third offers? Are you doing email blasts out to these people? Are you doing ringless voice or SMS to say, hey, you got my offer. I'd love to speak with you. You know, marketing these days, people don't convert on the first touch. They really Mm. don't. Some people do, but you know, the average stat, as you would know, is that people need to be nurtured or, you know, communicated to, if you like, on average about seven to 13 times before they go, Oh, these guys sound familiar. Maybe I'll pick up the phone and have a chat with them. So what we've put in place from a systems perspective is doing all of that, but doing all of that quite naturally and and almost on an automated um, way. And we're finding therefore our conversions are going up. Awesome. That's, and that's incredibly important for maximizing marketing and not giving up on the first try. And I think a lot of people start off in wholesaling. And I remember being pitched when I first moved to the United States, like at the local rears, like get into wholesaling. It's easy. It's like, let's just do it. You know, like that's where everyone starts, right? <laughs> but the people who are successful at wholesaling stick to it and then not only stick to it, but then develop decent systems around there to continue that follow-up, to maximize the marketing in order to get those touches up, as you said, 7, 12, 13, 24 touches. Like it can be a lot. Um, So you can come back again and again. Um, My next question for you is is how are you valuing and and I guess what sort of price range are you trying to – 
buy these the raw land. That's raw land, right? You're you're, you're flipping land. It is. That's, it's it's that's vacant major... land. Yep. 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 It's vacant land, and that can be anything from an infill lot in inner suburbia. Uh, through to, you know, massive acreage or even commercial land, industrial land. We do it all because if it's vacant, someone can do something with it is the way Mm -hmm. that we look at it. Um, Our price point rate, so our strategy, depending upon what we're going after in that particular marketing strategy, we can go anywhere from, you know, a couple of hundred dollars. (laughs) And that might just be an infill lot in a in a not great area, but somebody would prefer to get rid of it and have someone do something with it than not, all the way up to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so I know that sounds like a really broad range, but you've got to look at that based upon or what what zip code am I in marketing for specific properties? Because where there's buyers, there's got to be sellers and vice versa. And also if I'm out in really beautiful areas getting acreage and people are using that acreage to, you know, develop different lifestyles, um, there's a, a price that comes with that too. So we actually do a whole spectrum of things. What we do always look at though is what's our minimum value that we want per deal. And we've always said that we aim to get at least a minimum, uh, you know, four to $5,000 profit per deal after costs. Now that doesn't always work out. No, there are some times that you get a deal that uh, the more you look into it through the closing process, you realize there's back taxes and liens and maybe some probate issues to work out. But if it's good for the seller for us to help them with that and we have an active buyer and if it means that we need to forego some profit to help out both people, we will. Mm, interesting. And I think that that's really that important. Because that just makes good being- business sense. It does. And having such a people first business model, which is what we're in the business of doing, making sure you're connecting in that sort of goes back to what you said earlier, the win-win mindset of what you, when you first entered the United States, unlike potentially coming from Australia, it's not as win-win or the, 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 the daisy chain of trying to get in that sort of chain of command. Yeah. Um, but 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 I guess as as you morph into the products you've built, because we also talked about you got the data center. How else are you helping other people? You know, in, in starting the wholesaling business, based on the the products that you've created. Yeah, yeah, good question, Reid. So we um, if I can take us back a step, you know, I think we started off on this call talking about that. In the last 12 months, we've really had to think about how we get business efficiencies, being that we're 100% remote at the moment. And interestingly enough, about two years ago, we'd already started to think about that um, because of our, our goal of wanting to do business anywhere around the world, as long as we had a phone and a laptop. So we started to create out an acquisition model, um, purely acquisition, not disposition. So an acquisition model that included all of our data, all of our mailings um, and mail tracking, integrating that with online integration. So websites and sales pages that actually convert as opposed to just information on a page, um, Facebook ads, Google ads, uh, applying cookies and, you know, following people around with ads everywhere that we go, all based on our marketing model of acquisitions. So we just built that for ourselves because we were looking at the way that a lot of people were doing business from acquisitions, you know, having someone that, that downloaded a list or buying that list from somewhere employing a virtual assistant to cleanse that list for you, then going to a mail house and doing your own mail merging and uploading that and getting letters sent and then, you know, managing your own Facebook page and all of these things. And it was just so disjointed and inefficient. So we basically put all of that together in one system just for ourselves. We were being selfish, I'll admit it, um, (laughs) because we just wanted to do business better. And I think the one thing I see a lot, no matter what asset class people are in, is they'll get a deal or a couple of deals. They'll then focus all their time and energy on, great, how do I now get rid of that deal or fix the house and flip it or do whatever it is? 
and that's now completed and they turn back around to their pipeline and there's nothing there. Um, mm. So you see a lot of people kind of give up in wonders. this business a little bit. Be- yeah, because they're, they're doing this. It's like, you know, one month is great. Now it's not. Now it's great. Now it's not. And they're riding this wave of um, uncertainty. So we created supercharged offers purely so that we had more certainty about our pipeline. We just showed it to a couple of friends and uh, that we, we've got some really great networks in the US and some of them we now look at as family. And we showed it to a few of them and they're like, can you do that for us? <laughs> and so, you know, 18 months, two years ago now, uh, probably be about 18 months when we really launched, Supercharged Offers was born. So now not only do we have a land business that we do land and we, by the way, uh, it sounds like a crass term, but the way that Matt always says it is like, you've got to be okay to eat your own dog food. So in mm-hmm. other words, if you're going to build something for people to use, you have to stand by it and use it yourself. And I sure. totally am on 100%. board with that. So we use everything that we build in our own business. Um, and now we've got, I think we're up to about 30 different supercharged office customers that, that we now manage all of their acquisition process for them up to the point that when the phone rings, they then need to convert. Um, mm. And as soon as they're converting, they then manage the disposition process. Uh, yep. And that's going really, really well, Reid. We're, we're loving it. We're loving helping people to maximize their business opportunity. We're loving filling the gaps. You know, one thing I often talk about in business is the, the e-myth by Michael Gerber, which is mm-hmm. you can be great at, um, at, you know, your craft, let's say. Let's say you're a, a hairdresser. You can be an awesome hairdresser doesn't mean that you're going to be good in running 10 salons. You know, that's just not how it works. It's a different skill set. So I think what I'm loving most about supercharged offers is we're really helping people to fill a gap in their team without them needing to go and employ, you know, five other virtual assistants or or different people to to do all that stuff for them. Um, So supercharged offers has been super fun to work with and uh, (laughs) and to see people really start to scale their businesses and make it easy for them. Awesome. Well, as we come to the end of the show here, I want to wrap it up by asking, what are the plans for 2021 and beyond? I know we're still in COVID. What are you doing in the business to help continue to grow? And, and what are your goals coming up for this year in terms of maybe acquisitions or you know new clients or customers? Yeah, yeah, great. So I mentioned before that we, we have our own data warehouse and we're using that to um, drive different products and apps out there. So the goal for this year, we're, we're about to launch another product called neighborletters.com. Uh, and again, this is an entire automated system of, of when people have properties and marketing out to the neighborhood or the letters. Uh, again, that was a very manual process for a lot of people to do. Download your list, cleanse your list, do your mail merge, send it off to someone to print for you. We've built a system that does it all for you in 60 seconds and just done. So we're probably about one to two weeks away from launching that. That's been a a labor of love because as you would know, Reid, to develop any apps and products that are data-driven, you have these things called bugs <laughs> and they need to be ironed out. So, um, so you know, we've done a lot of testing with that and that's nearly ready to go. Secondary to that, uh, we, we have another um, business called Property Wizards that's also building out some more data-based apps and making it easy for people to do business no matter what asset class you're in. Um, I won't say any more about that at this point. So they're two massive projects that we've got for the rest of this year. Um, Secondary to that is keeping our land business where it is, but growing it. At the moment, we do on average, um, we send out about anywhere between 10 to 20,000 mailers a month. And on average, we're doing anywhere between say five to 15 deals a month. Um, I say average because, you know, 
some months you might be working on 20 deals and, and five all close at the same time. And that's, that's the beauty of, of, uh, of real estate investing. You might have all the right systems in place, but you're still dealing with people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so we really want to keep, keep that growing. Uh, we're looking at expanding into some new locations in that as well. And, um, and keeping our supercharged offers business growing, you know, we've got some fantastic customers on board there now, and we're always open to the feedback that they have around how we can make their lives easier. So we're always looking at um, systems and processes improvements. And, and in addition to that, I guess how we run our business in our CRM model, we've had quite a few people reach out to us and want us to help them with, with that um, and uh, we're already working on that with one customer. So we're asking ourselves, well, do we now have more of a managed services model that's part, part of our business too, where we can help people with that? So lots of exciting things to come, but, you know, we're definitely both of the mindset that uh, opportunities everywhere if you keep looking for it. 100%. And I mean, that's the biggest thing that I've taken away from today's show, and we'll wrap it up here in a, in, a, in a little bit, was just the opportunities that getting into any business, and, and for me personally, real estate was the the, the starting point, and it seems like same with you, but once you get into it to see all the other efficiencies, and, and real estate is the base of both of our businesses, but it's also growing an ecosystem to support the systems along the way, and then through that create yeah. products that can help bring in other vertical revenue streams that if the land flipping business goes kaput or whatever, you've still got other things to rely on. And they're the things that make uh, a biz, uh, an ecosystem and wealth truly, truly worth worth striving for. And, and something that I see at a lot 100%. of investors on the show talk about that they find something in the business that say, hey, this ain't right, but if I fix it, it helps me, but I could then maybe monetize it and sell it to someone else. I'm not saying from a selfishness point of view, but it also then adds a different, de-risks the business overall because you're not relying on one leg to support the table, right? You're relying on multiple different 100%. income streams. So I love, I love that yep. so much about that. And that, that, that's what gets me, gets my juices going. But um, yeah, but same. we're coming here to the end of this. <laughs> but we're coming here to the end of the show, and we are going to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Yep. Let's go. What is your daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, it's right here. I journal every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that sounds really basic and simple, but at the end of every day, I like to just do some quick analysis on what are the things that I'm super proud of for, for the day um, and what are the things that uh, that are, need to be in my key focus for the following day. So to close out my brain space for the day is a nice way to, to help sort of, you know, switch off from what we're doing and switch on to life a bit more, but equally to have things in our, our focus. You know, they often say where focus goes, energy flows. So that that's a daily practice that I do. Awesome. I, I, I just say I've got exactly the same thing here. I, I go through a lot of these little <laughs> notebooks and, and people have got these apps and stuff. And it, I, I know there's something about writing it down. The art of writing it down helps it get it. And then I get to cross it out at the end of the day. It's, yay, good for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, question, number yep. two, question number two is who is the most influential person in your career? Ooh, that's a big question. Uh, can I give you two? Sure. Uh, First one would be Tony Robbins. I've done all of his programs and I think that they really helped. This was over a decade ago I did all of his programs, but they really helped me to understand my my value and what I bring and and what I am am, and and am not willing to uh, accept in the world. You know, what are my boundaries and, and values and things too? And how do I put me first? So he was quite instrumental in me 
being a bit more bold and courageous with taking some leaps to, you know, start my own business and get a little bit crazy with the things that, that we do these days. Uh, and secondary to that um, was actually a guy called John McLean, who's a Paralympian based in Sydney. And when I was still employed, he asked me a really interesting question that changed the trajectory of everything. And it was one of those just light bulb moments. And the question he didn't realize at the time had a huge impact, but uh, you know, at, at the time I was doing a lot of looking after a lot of executives and, and doing lots of coaching internally in this organization. And he said, have you thought about doing this for others? Because you're really good at it. And it was just that one question. The very next day I, I went and made some very different decisions about things. So the moral of the story to that is, I think mentors are everywhere. We've just got to be open to what people say and do. Love it. I love it. Take the blinkers off and understand and be, yeah. um, what's the word, sort of uh, vulnerable enough to take on the criticism or just take on their advice because so many people have so many yeah. walls up all the time that they don't, they don't, they need to break those down and just let things occur to you rather and happen to you rather than always going out to seek them, right? I, I think that's uh, yeah. super important. Yeah. Uh, question number three is in your business, and we talked a lot about your tools today, but let's talk again. What is the number one tool you use in your business? When I say tool, it could be your softwares that you've created, or it could be uh, Slack, or it could be Asana or something online, but it also could be a physical tool like your journal or your phone or a person in your team. What is the number one tool in your business and why? Oh, can I say all of the above? Because we use pretty much all of that. <laughs> um, I'm going to say our number one tool in our business is, um, whew, big question. I, I will say our CRM and how we have created our CRM. We use Freshworks as a CRM. And Freshworks has been really instrumental in helping us grow our business from a reporting accountability pipeline management, all of these things that um, very quickly when you're growing can get out of control. So bringing all yes. of that together in one system has been fantastic. Um, I guess the second thing is, is um, if I can add another one, is, uh, is our mm -hmm. data and the way that we're using yep. our data to get outcomes and, and drive outcomes for our customers. And the third would be my partner, Matt. Now, he's not a tool, um, but <laughs> he is certainly, you know, we're doing so many things together and we're an awesome partnership and, and we really support each other and encourage each other. And not only that, we push each other to do better and be mm. better. So, you know, it, we're almost like each other's kind of accountability buddy at the end of the day. That's awesome. Well done. And not, not many couples can do that. So congratulations. Uh, question number four is, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? And what did you learn from that failure? My biggest, uh, I, I'm not, I don't like to use the word failure because I think whenever we fail, we, we fail forward and we learn from it and pivot quickly. That's sure. my mindset around failure. Sure. Um, but probably sure. my biggest mistake was not starting my own business earlier. It took me two years to leave a, a good paying job to go out on my own because I let fear overcome what in my heart I knew I really wanted to do. And those two years, if I kind of think back and I think, what if I had have started that sooner? And what if I was really just backed myself a little bit more and did that? You know, would, would I be in a different position today? Who knows? Because none of us have a crystal ball. But my biggest regret was that I let fear and paralysis of analysis stop me from what I really wanted to do. Mm, I love that. It's so, we can get so caught up in our own mind sometimes. We too focused on the outcomes and not 
on the negative outcomes that is like what this could go wrong if I do this I could give up I don't have money coming in to pay the rent like basic stuff like that the sort of yeah. the reptilian Why brain walk away going from a mental job? like you know yeah exactly <laughs> exactly, exactly like life is you know my upbringing is telling me my friends are telling me about I shouldn't do this but it's so important to back yourself and know that you can do it and just jump and there will be a net to catch you because when your back is against the wall, things change dramatically, dramatically when you have no other totally. options. So, yep. yeah, love I think that. You, you end up approaching life um, in, a, in a very different mindset because it's like, I've got to make this work now. So there's no sitting back and just letting it, uh, letting it pass. It's like, right, if you're in, you're in. Yep, 100%, 100%. Now, final question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So I would always be open to helping anybody um, through their, their real estate trials and tribulations and also just giving any uh, any help I can because I know what it's like to get started and, and to grow a business. Uh, they can give me a, a call. Our team, uh, our team for supercharged offers can be reached on 888-538-5478. That will go to our, my team, but they will pass on a message to me or can email me direct so it's alicia which is a l i c i a uh reed and i were laughing before how many people get that wrong so alicia at superchargedoffers.com superchargedoffers.com all right well look i want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today i've really enjoyed our conversation and i think some of the biggest takeaways that i took away from today's show for me personally was your ability to challenge yourself and do something that is probably a little bit outside the norm being that i am australian i understand where you come from and sort of the looks that you get and going to a conference and then taking the initiative to do to start a business halfway across the world I can just, I, I sympathize. I empathize with you. I know how probably how hard it is <laughs> to come across, but then taking that and then making your systems, not just good, but better, better than what's out there. And then creating a product around that. I think that's really good kudos and good business modeling for yourselves to then offer something else that was missing in the market. Given that you can have a little bit of your superpower is probably the fact that you are abroad, right? You do come from another country. You do see the shortcomings of certain systems or in certain business industries that saying, hey, if we did, if we just did a bit of data, you know, we talk about the hook and the bait. If the, the hook and the bait are just a little bit better, we can do so much, our business will grow so much more just through different yeah. tweaks in the model. And I think that is yep. really, really important for so many people out there to have the self-awareness. And I, and I, and I believe being an Australian, I think it's because that is part of your superpower being an Aussie from afar, being able to view something with a different lens because of where you've come from and the market that you come from. But I talk about all the time, this shows that the opportunities that you ex described early on, the, the daisy chain ain't there to get to jump on board in Australia. So you can get involved at lower levels in the US and there's opportunities plentiful that, that just don't exist back home. And I think that is, again, probably some of the superpowers that you have in and around what you've created with your business. So, so did I leave anything out there? I think that's a beautiful summary, Reid, and, and it's uh, it's interesting to hear you say that and, and call it a superpower because I think when you're in it, you don't often feel like it's a superpower, but I'm starting to see more and more through the podcast I'm doing and, and the things that people are saying to me, they're kind of like, wow, you guys are really rocking it from Australia and you think, yeah, we are, so kudos. <laughs> so thank you for that wrap up. That's, uh, that's really kind. Well, my pleasure. Well, look, I want you to enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy your happy Easter and long weekend, and we'll catch up very, very soon. Wonderful. Thanks for having me on, Reid.
My pleasure. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Alicia and her team and what she's built over there at superchargeoffers.com. Please go over and check out everything they have to offer over on that website. She is doing amazing things with her partner, Matt, and I just you know, wish her all the best in the future. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes, and we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Thank you.